Welcome to uh, Mercy Hill Podcast. Uh, we do these from time to time, and we do them when we have a subject that we're talking about on a Sunday morning that is too big to cover in a 35 minutes. So we love just gathering your questions, just kind of trying to get as many of them answered as possible. Uh, some of them are very related, so you may not hear your question, but it'll probably be heard by another question that, that was asked that was very similar. Um, if you are, if this is your first exposure and you miss Sunday mornings, like we really encourage you to go hear uh, Steve Jones's talk. He gave an amazing talk this morning about the Bible and trauma, which was really great. Like I was really excited about that. And now we get to answer those questions. So the order is listen to the sermon, <laughs> then do this. But welcome, Steve Jones. Thank you. You know? Yeah, it's great to hang out with you again. And, uh, and even those of you that are watching this, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak at Mercy Hill this morning. Wasn't sure whether we were going to call it a sermon or a TED Talk, somewhere in between yeah. those two things. But um, really thankful for that opportunity to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. Yeah, and I forgot to introduce myself. You know who I am, but to them, I'm Ernie Benoit. I'm the, the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. Yeah. But Steve, tell us a little bit about you. Like, what is what what got you into counseling? Yeah, give us a little bit of your background, your history. Yeah, so I um, kind of grew up in a pastor's home. Um, didn't always think about being a pastor, but eventually became one. Um, didn't sort of knew what I was getting into, but. Not really. Um, so, man, isn't that the story? Yeah. <laughs> so I was on staff at a church for about four years, just associate worship and all that. It wasn't until I got in the lead role at a church in Des Moines, Iowa, in a part of the town that, um, you know, everyone has problems, but it just felt like there was a lot of problems there, a lot of drug addiction, um, family dysfunction. And a lot of the way I'd been trained in counseling, I, I, I loved counseling. Um, you know, what I would describe more as pure biblical counseling, like we just go to the Bible and there's something here, which I still think we should go to the Bible. There's a lot of great, you know, that's where the ultimate hope and truth is. But what started to happen was people coming into our church with stuff uh, that I, I didn't know what to do with. I had no idea. Um, what I now would, ca- you know, classify as pretty significant mental health issues. And it just seemed like my approach and my answers w- were just falling short. It wasn't what they needed in that moment. Mm. So I kind of grew up in a very conservative background, went to a very conservative Bible college, have a degree in theology. Um, and... Uh, you know, that just came at it with that mm-hmm. and thought that psychology, anything in that whole world was really not good. Mm. Um, a guy that came to lead our psych- psychology department at my Bible college started doing some things and they fired him. Like, you're going too far with that. So I kind of had a negative feeling about that until I started encountering a lot of stuff, mm. um, and it started to pique my interest again, started reading a few things, and one thing led to another. And I just thought, um, I don't know what I'm doing. I want to help people. I know there's more to the brain. I know there's more to how 
Things like trauma affect mm-hmm. a person's body and brain and just the complexities of that. So that led me uh, quite a few years ago. I've been in a master's program for way too long. In 2014 is when I went to Drake University and began their, their uh, mental health counseling program. And there was a lot of stops and starts in there Man. just because I was a lead pastor and just <laughs> yeah. trying to run a church. And But it just began to open my eyes to a world, um, you know, that wasn't like pop psychology or just, it, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was science. It was things that I just didn't really know were happening to people and uh, just neurologically and that really affected my ability to introduce them to Christ and the gospel. And mm-hmm. so that got me going down that path and uh, kind of put it on hold for several years until I got to Cornerstone just because of there was so much going on in our church in Des Moines. Then I resigned from there, moved up to Cornerstone Church, and somewhere along the line there we decided to open a counseling center. And it, it made sense for me to start back in that program and finish it up and it's been a grind mm. when, but, when but you finish done. i'm done, I'm done. Yeah. hey yeah so was anyway. i actually there uh like two weeks ago yes you finish your last paper yeah. yeah you were you got to be a yeah. part of that what a, what a glorious moment <laughs> yeah to submit that last paper right but <laughs> but even if my program it's been stretched way too long i've just said lived in that world and been able to use things that I, you know, continue to learn in my pastoral work. And so I think the way I see just those two worlds, it's not an either or. And even when I talk to pastors about, you know, the Cornerstone Counseling Center, um, we have licensed uh, professional counselors there, Mm -hmm. but they all are Christians and they ultimately work from a Christian worldview, just what we would call an integrationist approach. Mm -hmm. And um, what I tell pastors uh, and, and what I came to, even, you know, when I studied in Des Moines, I just started finding professional, you know, Christian counselors mm-hmm. um, where I could just send people, you know, beyond things that were beyond my training and, and what I was, felt like I was capable of mm-hmm. doing. Um, and the way I say it to pastors is it's a partnership. You know, we're working together in, mm-hmm. in what we do is add, you know, another layer of pastoral care for the people that you love and care for. So we're we're partners. We're in this together. And that has, at least in the Ames community and some of the surrounding uh, counties, uh, pastors that are sending people to us uh, just become a blessing. And they're just mm-hmm. mostly saying, thank you so much. We need <laughs> yeah. this for so long. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was working in Texas just trying to create a roster of counselors. Yeah. Because I'm like, so many times I was finding myself just beyond my depth. Like, right. I'm not trained for this. I'm trained yeah. to, you know, teach people to follow Jesus and make disciples and teach the Bible. But right. there was so much of that aspect I, like, I didn't know. And is that one of the things that led you to creating the Counseling Center in Ames? Is that like, was there was a deficiency of that? Or was it like our, our difficulty of finding it for people? Yeah. So there were three, there's, there's quite a few places in Des Moines, but there were three pretty large counseling centers that I would send people to. Okay. But they, the, I knew the directors of those counseling centers, um, and I, I heard a consistent thing. Up in Ames, up in Story County, there's nothing like, you know, mm. like New Life Counseling or Family Legacy or Heart and Christian. There's nothing like that. There gotcha. are some Christian therapists up there. 
One of my friends, who's the director of uh, New Life Counseling, said if anyone ever went up there and did that, it, they would not be able to contain because people come mm-hmm. down to Des Moines for that. So even when I moved to Ames, that wasn't on the radar. It wasn't until mm-hmm. Mark Vance and some of the staff went down to, to uh, Austin Stone and mm-hmm. for some conferences, and they found out that there is a Christian counseling center. In fact, it had grown so much there was like six locations. Oh wow! And it just had become a a critical piece, and it was, you know, counseling centers that were staffed by licensed professional counselors. So they came back and said, hey, do you think we could do something like this? And, I mean, the wheels are just started turning immediately, and I'm like, I, I think we can. <laughs> I yeah. think we can do this. Wow. And, and we opened six months later with four therapists, and by three months after that had six therapists, and wow. a year later probably had ten. It just wow. was blowing up. And all of them, we would fill up immediately. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just as continued. There's such a, a desire for professional counseling that is integrated with theology and, you know, Christian worldview. Yeah. Yeah, and you had a hand in helping with the Cedar Falls one get yes. off the ground. And you advised them. And Yeah, and, you know, Aaron Culley's the director there, and he and I were meeting quite a bit, just, Mm -hmm. you know, almost like, here's how we did it, here's what we learned, and I said, you should get ready, because I think (laughs) things could happen the exact same way there, and I think they started with, you know, him and maybe a couple other therapists, and just within a year, year and a half, I think the last time I counted, they might have eight to ten therapists already, and so they're just seeing Candale Christian Counseling having the same impact in the Cedar Valley right. over there. Yeah, and I think it's still such a great need because, I mean, in Cincinnati, we've started to discover some people. If you're looking for something, by the way, we have some resources on our website, including some counselors. And somebody asked those questions, like, who are some good ones? And that's just been some research that our staff's done. But even those, they're just full, like right. months out. Like, it's just right. insane. Uh, well, let's let's get into this, this topic okay. of trauma. <laughs> You know, and we got a ton of great questions, so we're just going to just go through them yeah. as best we can. Um, so here's here's one question. Is The first one, actually, is how do you hold uh, or acknowledge the trauma you've experienced with the hope we have in Christ? Yeah, and that's a, a great question, and I think... If, if you get a chance to listen to the sermon slash TED mm-hmm. Talk from this morning, you know, I, I tried to weave some of that hope in there. Um, uh, just in kind of the, the end game of where we want to get. And, but within that, um, we do believe the gospel. We do believe that the healing we need is ultimately found in Christ and what he's able to do. He, he's a, a restorer, he's a healer, and the gospel does that. But it's just putting that out there but being patient and how we bring that into the life of a person. So I would just say uh, to that question, you know, we, we want to give that hope, but we know that it might take time to, to get there, to walk patiently yeah. with that person. Yeah, and even what came to mind as I was looking at was, you know, the the ultimate hope that we have is when we're in the presence of God and he's made all things new. It's the return of Christ, Mm -hmm. and it's the redemption of all things that are broken. It's Revelation 21 that there'll be a day where this thing will will be as far from you as eternity, and it is. And that that day will will be much longer than this life. Right. 
it's I don't know if that's very helpful though for people yeah. experiencing this experiencing trauma at this moment because it probably feels so oppressive to them. Right. You know, it's like all I can feel is today. Yeah. You know. I think the thing about you know the hope we have in Christ is is also where is the ultimate healing found mm-hmm. and. And I mentioned this in, in the talk this morning, you know, work by Dr. Enright and many others, but he developed forgiveness therapy. And he was working with uh, ladies who had been sexually abused, you know, really complex trauma stuff. And, and just, you know, he's a believer, uh, but also a clinical psychologist, lots of research, and, and just, you know, saying in maybe a therapeutic way what we know, that ultimately healing's found in forgiveness. We know that we can't hold on to anger and resentment and mm-hmm. heal. And we don't want to say that too quickly because, you know, right. it's okay to be angry. I mean, right. if an injustice happens to you, that's, that's a hard, hard thing. Even in, you know, there's grief work even within trauma, you know, the, mm-hmm. the denial, the anger, <clears throat> you know, the bargaining, just those steps that even when we help somebody work through grieving and so a lot of times when I'm working with somebody that's experienced has experienced trauma I mean there's loss involved and so there's a lot of grief work inside that and anger is one of them yeah so let's talk a little bit more about that because there's a question that came in and it says how do you walk alongside someone who has experienced deep trauma and I'm not and obviously I think this is a friend talking about another friend mm-hmm. or someone that's close talking about them like well, how do we be great friends to our friend, to the yeah. people that we love in those moments yeah so yeah we were even talking about that just a little bit but I think it's in our attempt to help somebody we want to move too quickly to fix them to give them an answer mm-hmm. to coach to teach and all of that and there may be a time and place for that at some point Mm-hmm. But even in our trauma counseling training, um, you know, even for a trained therapist who's working with, with people that have been traumatized, the, the first step mm-hmm. is to create a, a place of safety, uh, to make sure that person feels very safe with mm-hmm. you, that you are, you know, you are their trusted one. You are the one that they may, you may be the first person that they ever tell of what's really going on and what really happened because they've mm-hmm. never, maybe they've tried that before and it was minimized or, you know, we don't believe you or in a lot of families, it's like, well, um, that could mess up our family. So we're just going to hide that. And, and yeah. so that person is suffering in silence. So we don't want to force people to go there. We want to be the friend that, that is just steady and consistent and safe and that they feel that. And we let them be the one to, you know, get to the point where they say, okay, I, I feel like I can entrust this to you. So it's kind of like the practice of being present. Like yeah. Being present, empathy, like it's not, you're not a counselor. Right. Don't try to have the counseling session with them. Yeah. But just be a safe place for them. Right. And that's the other thing, <clears throat> to not carry that burden. I've, yeah. I've got... You know, I'm, I've got to be a, a therapist. I've got, right. to, I've got to have all these answers. The, if people just knew how, how much therapy the, there is just inside of a trusted friendship and relationship mm. where I feel like I can truly bear my soul and my, my deepest secrets and you're not going to criticize me, mm-hmm. you're not going to minimize it, you're not going to preach at me, yeah. correct me, all those things. Um, that's where therapy begins. Even if you do the handoff to somebody else, there's incredible therapeutic work that happens inside of that. 
Yeah, I, I, I have actually experienced that firsthand in going through difficult situations and and just the people that came alongside me and they were just quiet or they are just right. like created space and, and had patience and they weren't like, dude, it's a week, like, why are you still on this? Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, you don't understand. Yeah, I had somebody one time, I was going through a fairly traumatic thing um, as a pastor and was right in the middle of just saying, this is how it has affected me. This, these are the things I'm feeling. And I was starting to get really vulnerable. Yeah. And this person looked at me and said, do we, do we need to keep talking about this? And we had only mm-hmm. just started in my mind and mm-hmm. I just closed off mm-hmm. and like right away, <clears throat> something in me said, you're not safe. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm, you know. But I needed that. I needed, you know, after safety, there's processing. Right. And even at a certain level, friends and the trusted one, you know, can even do some level of processing, which is like, you know, it's okay to tell me your your story. Yeah. And you used that word earlier, the trusted one, as we were kind of looking through these questions before. Talk a little bit about that, because I think one of the questions that came out was like, what happens when I think somebody or one of my friend has gone through trauma? Yeah. Like, what part does that trusted one play in, like? Yeah, um, you know, whether you, you, you would know if you're the trusted one. Yeah, Cause some people, Yeah, <laughs> some people are, you know, like the, the self-appointed church fixer person, mm. and, and they have, may have a good heart, and they want to help people. So they might not want to force issues and conversations with people that are not natural, and that person doesn't feel safe, even if they mean well. So... You know, the, the person that is the trusted one is someone that there's been a lot of time in in vulnerability at certain levels. Even in therapy, you know, it might take two or three or four sessions before someone says, okay, I feel safe in this space. Yeah. The therapist has been patient, um, has not been too quick to make judgments and, you know, or give advice or whatever. And then that person sits back and says, I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you something that I've never told anybody. Oh, wow. And in that moment, you know, you you are a trusted one. They're going to entrust a, a really dark thing with you because they mm-hmm. know you're going to hold that with them and, and care for them inside of that. Yeah. And when you're in those conversations with people, because somebody asked the question, like, are there certain phrases to mm-hmm. avoid? Are there some things not to say? Like, you even mentioned one a minute ago, like the guy just said, do we have to keep talking yeah, about this? Yeah. You know, there's some that come to mind. They're just like, hey, just, these are, they seem helpful, you know, but they're not helpful. Yeah, I think some of the quick cliches, I mentioned a couple of them, Yeah. you know, in in the talk this morning, you know, and I, I do want to read Diane Lambert's quote just one more time. Do it. <clears throat> but, you know, we want to avoid things like, <clears throat> you know, by, you know, the Bible says don't be anxious about anything. Mm. I can sense you have a lot of anxiety right now, so you need to repent of that and mm. just trust God more or whatever. Not realizing that so much of that anxiety is just, they're, they're not choosing to be anxious. There's just so much mm. impact that complex trauma or just any kind of traumatic experience has on a person. Right. If they're still in that, that you know, flighter, you know, fight or flight mode, um, <clears throat> So just, you know, things that would make them at fault, that would point the blame at them. Mm. You know, a, a Christian doesn't think that way, feel that way. You should never be angry. Mm. You should never worry. And 
So just being careful with some of those quick Christian phrases. But Diane Langward um, says, clinical psychologist, incredible Christian woman. She was one of the the, the, the people that helped develop the Caring Well uh, curriculum and, and things, and just a wonderful person. She said, keep in mind that when someone comes to see you uh, to talk about abuse, they are attempting to tell you something they most want to forget. Mm. They are afraid of what happened, of the person who did it, of you and your reactions, as well as of remembering and speaking out loud. So I've had people that have come out of very, very abusive situations, and they were told by a church leader or even a pastor, you need to go back and reconcile with them. And it wasn't even safe. Hmm. So just things like that, you know, safety first, you know, whatever that situation is. Um, They are afraid of what you will think of them. So we don't want to say things that offer any kind of judgment. We, of, you know, things that they're thinking and feeling. They feel overwhelmed. Your main task is to listen well. They want to tell you an ordered story. Most abuse and rape stories come out fragmented and disordered. And so saying things like, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. You said this over here, and now you're saying this. Is this true? Is this real? Are you making this up? And so understanding how the trauma brain works and it's fragmented and it's not going to come out in a clean, linear story. They're, wow. So those kind of responses. And when you think about it and you hear that, you're like, well, wow, I would never want to do that. But we often do that but because you know, like, like, I, I caught you in a lie. You said this here yeah. and now you're saying this. And so we just, if it's a person that has experienced real trauma, mm-hmm. you know, we want to be so careful with that. They may say things uh, to you that you want to correct. And so any kind of things in this initial disclosure that we don't want to correct, we just want to listen and mm-hmm. validate, There's this is not the time for that. You're giving them a safe space to tell a frightening and often shame-ridden story at their pace. Mm-hmm. Let them know that what they're doing is courageous and is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. They're speaking a truth and dragging darkness into light. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like that that I think often happen when we are in Fix mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we just move out of fix mode and into empathetic listening mode, and, and my main thing right now is to make you feel very safe with me, and mm-hmm. then that helps keep us from making those kind of statements that could actually cause more, more harm. It's the idea of being a smoker instead of a microwave. Yes. So often we want to just microwave yes. it right away, but it probably needs to sit there for much longer than you think. Yeah, and for a person like me who's very type A, right? I'm like, I'm like, whack a mole. Like, oh, there yeah. it is, there it is, there it is. Let's, get these, let's check this list off, and it's just, yeah, not helpful. And one of the things I've found as I've gotten older in pastoring is just like the more I shut my mouth yeah. and just listen, the the better it is for that person. Right. Sometimes it will actually almost every time. You know, and they're, you know, they're going to go to the person that they already feel like they have a relationship with. I mean, they're usually somebody, people do, not always, but people do have somebody that they generally feel like, I think I can go to, you know, this person. I can go to Ernie and just tell him mm-hmm. just about anything because I know him. He knows me. You know, he loves and cares for me. So if, if you're the one that they come to, you know, they're not just coming to anyone. There's something that they feel good about, safe about. So that's a stewardship. Mm-hmm. You know, they're entrusting something to us, and so we want to manage that really well. Yeah, 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it's such a vulnerable spot to be in, it, for them to be in, and it just it really matters how you respond. And so we have a question here. It's kind of along the lines of like, hey, so I have a friend, um, and when they talk about trauma and mental health issues, they think it's a result that a person sinned and that they, and that they are to blame for it. The, the people who experience trauma is for blame for it. So how would you respond to someone like that? You know, it's going like, well, it, it's all a root from your sin. Like, yeah. So I think it's distinguishing between trauma and other things. Like, I, I have anxiety. Yeah. Well, what, what happened? Uh, you know, why do you have it? Well, I cheated on a test. Yeah. And I'm afraid the professor is going to find out about it and flunk me. <laughs> I have anxiety. Okay, yeah. so there are some things like that um, where we could say, yeah, that, that, you know, we can point to a sin that mm-hmm. was committed that's causing that. But when you, when you look at the, the whole gamut of anxiety, um, you know, when, when somebody comes to me and says, uh, I was raped, and you think of how violating that is, and, and right. it was someone that forced themselves on them. Right. And, you know, as I said this morning, you're, you're, you're not to blame, and, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're not at fault, you're not to blame. But there's all kinds of emotions that they're, they're they're feeling shame, they're feeling guilt, they're feeling anxiety. There's they're just, you know, and then you <clears throat> you find out that has it has happened multiple times, and then mm-hmm. you find out it's happened by someone that should have been a protector and wasn't. Mm-hmm. So there's no secure base, there's no safe haven there. So mm-hmm. that person is also experiencing high levels of anxiety and stress and hypervigilance and you know they're they're afraid yeah so we don't we, we you can take those same words and say some fear is rooted in right some kind of sin or anxiety some fear is you you are in a situation you know if any of us were abducted like I said this morning right. and we're gonna have fear and it's right. not because we're in sin it's because someone is doing something to us that's outside of our control. It's a power and control thing. Yeah. So I would just say that that's not right to think, uh, you know, that just always points the finger at the victim. And, yeah. and, and that's, I, I don't think that's the gospel. I, yeah. I don't think, I think God is a defender of the weak, is a defender of the oppressed. And I think there's mm. plenty of information in Scripture where God steps in not pointing the finger of, of sin, but you are being oppressed, and I am a, a defender of the weak. You know, yeah. things that happen to orphans and widows and all the fear associated with that in ancient Near East culture it was terrible. And, mm-hmm. and God stepping in, not blaming, but defending. Yeah, like I think about how Paul, I think it's in, it's in Philemon or whatever, he says, I loved you like a father, I loved you like a mother. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's like, I feel like those people, you know, I watch my wife love our kids, and when they're right. scared, like, she just runs and hugs them. I'm, yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. and, but the love of, like, those are people need in those moments of someone to come wrap their arms around them right. and be like, and create a sense of safety so that, like, normal dialogue could happen. Right. You know, because, is that correct? Like, am I going up the yeah. right way? Yeah. I mean, I just think uh, we... We had a tornado coming towards Stillwater, Oklahoma. I mean, there was actually about seven or eight coming toward the town. (laughs) And my boys were terrified. 
because we could see one of them. It was like a half mile wide, and it was still five miles out coming straight for the church. Oh, wow. Everybody was in a state of panic and fear and some in you know terror. There was no basement. There was nowhere to go. Yeah. And some of us felt like, you know, we this could be it. We could die. You know, do we get in our car and drive somewhere? Do we stay? Do we... So it would have been wrong for me as, as a dad to do anything but gather my boys around and mm. just hold them mm. and acknowledge we're all afraid right now. But it had mm. nothing to do with a sinful response. Right. It's like there's a tornado. Right. There's something that's devastating coming yeah. there. Yeah. And I see people, too, in these moments, like, I don't know, I don't know if I have the right words for it, but there's people that, like, they want to be helpful, and and they give really bad advice. Right. You know, or they give it at the wrong time. Like, they want to talk about, you know, someone has been hurt, they went out, and someone took advantage of them, and then what they want to address is, what were you doing out? Right. You know? And it's like... And I, and I think there's a, a moment about being wise and being safe, but yeah. I don't think it's like in the first 20 conversations, right. you know, with that person, right. you know, about like, because there, there's a reality of, hey, it's a dangerous world, yeah. you know, and but there's, but I just think they get to that conversation way too soon. Is that, yes. is that, is that where you see a lot of Yeah, that it's from? just the quick, you know, quick fix. analyzing, jumping to conclusions, mm-hmm. um, making assumptions, and and you just don't know yeah. what what happened. And even then, you know, if a twenty eight year old is doing something to a fourteen year old, yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. It's statutory rape, and you could point the finger at the fourteen year old girl and say, "Well, you should have never been there, and why did you sneak out of the house?" Right. And what she needs, she's been violated, and even if she made some bad decisions. She's been violated. Right. And what she needs is empathy and safety, and she got taken advantage of an adult, by an adult. Yeah, she's a victim. So there's just ways that we move in, and we don't make a quick rush to judgment, and and we don't see these mental health crises, the effects of trauma, as always pointed to some kind of sin decision that somebody made. Yeah. I think that's a mistake that is often made inside of the church. So here's a question that was asked, too. It's kind of a change of pace, a little more direct. It says, how do you lead your family through a sexual abuse of a child? Yeah. You know, and I hear the stats you were saying, like, what was it, one in, one in five? Yeah. You know? So my response to that is, is usually to introduce, if people aren't aware of it, the whole idea of attachment theory, and that's the, you know, which happens inside the home. You know, kids either grow up with a secure base or an insecure base. Okay. Or secure attachment or insecure attachment. Those secure attachments provide the best possible way for kids to develop relationally and emotionally Mm because they are just interacting, not with perfect parents, but with parents that are doing the best job to create a, a place that feels safe, you know, proper amounts of exploration, but we're here, we're safe. So when that's not there, when it's an insecure attachment, um, and that that can manifest in so many different ways, those kids are in a much more vulnerable place as far as when things happen. They're not developing the same way relationally, emotionally. So when when I hear a question like that, you know, family does need to you know, evaluate what do our kids experience in this place? Are they experiencing 
a secure space? Is it a secure or is it is it insecure? Mm-hmm. And that's when you just bring in all kinds of things that, that we would teach even in parenting classes. You know, just what's the difference between authoritarian, authoritative parenting and passive parenting? Mm-hmm. And we want to be in that middle lane of authoritative, which is the Ephesians 6-4 idea. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're not exasperating them. We're not stir- stirring them up to anger out of just injustice and just treating them however we want. Right. And then that's, that bringing them up is that trefo. It's the, the idea of nurture and tenderness. So the environment we're creating, where we want to get to the, the boundaries and, you know, teaching, is an environment of, that's filled with nurture and safety. So I think parents need to think about that when something comes up. What does it feel like inside of here? Maybe make some correctives there. But some of the correctives can be made in that moment. And, mm-hmm. like, this, this family I just work with, you know, right away, the, the, and it was one of those things where the parents could have said, hmm, it's inside of the extended family. We don't want to blow this thing up. Mm. It's implicating this family member. Um, they could have made their teenage daughter feel even more traumatized and hurt mm. if they had not, you know, as a dad, he's a big dude, just you come behind me. I am your protector right now. I believe you. Uh-huh. And I'm going to protect you from any further harm. Right. What happens is we don't want to mess up the family system, and so we're going to still, we're not going to protect you. We sort of believe what you're saying, but we want to keep everything happening normal here. Mm. So you're, we're still going to get together for all the family stuff and still putting that. Mm. And what that communicates to that teenage daughter is you don't really care. Mm. You don't really believe how deeply this has hurt me. And so... That what that family did was they addressed it. They said, "We believe you, and we're gonna we're gonna confront it, even if the outcome is our family system will never be the same." Mm. What they the message they sent to her was, "We believe you, and we're gonna protect you, and we want to help you get the help that you need, mm-hmm. even if it means that things are gonna be different." It sent an incredible message to her. You know, we're walking with you. We want to do everything we have to do, even if it's painful. So it meant some painful confrontations. Mm-hmm. Um, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. It was gut-wrenching. We cried and prayed together. Mm-hmm. But I know that that teenage girl feels loved and safe and cared for because mom and dad stepped in and said, we really are a safe haven. Yeah. And now it's being tested, and, and we're going we're gonna to keep living that way with you. Yeah. If there's steps for, like, a parent to have, you know, like, when, when they, they experience that their child's been abused, like, what are those steps? Is it, like, believe them? Is it call the police? Is it, you know, find a counselor? Like, what, what are yeah. some of those steps that would be, like... I mean, it, the, the, the yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing is to, to believe. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we're hearing from Diane Langberg and so many others. You know, just... You know, kids are generally not going to make that stuff up. Yeah. Um, so we, we just want them to feel like we believe you. It took them a lot of courage to get to that point. We believe you, and we want to protect you. Um, you know, people often debate on why, why do we call the police? Why, why do we get civil authorities? And, you know, Romans 13 is very clear that the civil authorities aren't like those people on the outside. They are God's servants. Right. To 
protect and guide and, and correct. And so, you know, when something, the, the, the kind of the litmus test on, and this is what, you know, a lot of churches, you know, the whole Southern Baptist thing, you know, like, well, this is something that happened inside the church and we just handle it inside mm. the church and we don't need to get people, you know, people outside the church involved. And the, the problem with that is when something <clears throat> is a criminal uh, act, it's like, okay, that's, that's not something for Pastor Ernie. Right. It's a criminal action happened. And, and so it's incumbent upon families and churches to get the civil authorities involved. And, and I think a reason for that, it doesn't mean that they're going to arrest or do anything, but I think it, it gives the appropriate, appropriate authority. Because you can go, there's a difference between you going and saying, hey, we heard this. Mm-hmm. And we're here to confront you. And I'm like, well, God love yeah. you. You're Pastor Ernie. You're a great guy. But there's a difference between yeah, that and lot. something yeah. criminal happened here. And mm-hmm. it's a, a guy wearing a uniform right. that's with you and saying, we love you. But this is this is very serious. And we, we want to move into this in a way that protects the victim and hopefully leads you to repentance and restoration. Mm. So I think <clears throat> making that call is appropriate even if it feels very painful mm-hmm. like wow um can't believe i'm calling the police especially if it's inside the family the reason why it's so important to say inside the family is because that's where most sexual abuse happens right so yeah. you're calling the police on a cousin a brother an uncle a grandpa yeah. Yeah, but it needs to happen, and it doesn't mean I don't love you. It means I love you so much that you need a God-appointed authoritative voice in your life, mm. and whatever consequences come out, you can't mm-hmm. engage in criminal activity and think we're going to hide it and cover it up. Right. Yeah, and so uh, along with that, you mentioned the Southern Baptist stuff. Yeah, and we had a question that came in about this. Uh, says. Uh, can y'all address church hurt slash trauma? I think it's a real issue these days, especially in light of the Southern Baptist denomination and other denominations and what they've gone through. Yeah. And so. So something that I always thought that was well known, but not as well known as I had hoped, uh, is the Caring Well Initiative. Hmm. And so you can go to caringwell.com and see after the 2019 Houston Chronicle expose about 600 plus pastors, church leaders that had allegations and even, you know, I mean, it verified, uh, you know, that, that were just where, where the churches weren't doing much about it. It was just blown out into this article. And the Southern Baptists, at least an element of it, Responded. J.D. Greer was the president at that time, and he put a commission together and an amazing and super helpful resource. resource came out where churches can, there's training videos, there's books, there's all kinds of things um, in response to that. The sad fact is that whole thing was rejected by a lot of Southern Baptist pastors and churches and, and leaders hmm. for all kinds of reasons. They didn't want to have to deal with all the litigation they just didn't want to deal with Pastor So and So because we were in seminary together, and mm. I, you know, just all these weird things that overlooked the deep pain and hurt in the lives of many women that had experienced that mm. um, in a place with a pastor, worship leader, 
again, in, the, in kind of the idea of complex trauma with somebody that should be a safe place, right. and where they use their position as a, a, a you know, for as power a, and control over right. that. So um, I um, and some of our staff from Cornerstone, when that, uh, they put on a Karenwell conference, I think it was the summer of 2020, well, 2019, I mean, they rolled it out fast, and we flew down and went to a conference. And, and I mean, I wept through most of it, honestly. Mm. I mean, mainly because I weep easy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was like these 30-minute TED Talks from pastors, therapists, clinical psychologists, law enforcement, attorneys that were... Mm in litigation and in sexual abuse situations. We were just getting barraged with that, but they were mixed with stories by 40-year-old women, 50-year-old women, 70-year-old women who for the first time were saying, here's my story. And and I feel like finally I can tell my story. I feel like finally I'm going to be believed. And it it was, I, I left there angry hopefully in a good way, um, an anger, a passion that just pushed me even further. And I had already worked with a lot of abused women in my church in Des Moines, but just even a, a greater fire to stand in the gap and advocate for those who've been abused. And we came back and launched that initiative at Cornerstone. And, I mean, that's just part of the language in our church. Um, we put in policies and things and uh, most of our leaders um, have gone through it. We take our staff through it every year, and we just want people to know Cornerstone is a safe place. And, you know, mm. anytime I have the opportunity, you know, for that kind of question, which is a great question, and it's a legitimate one because, honestly, a lot of churches are not safe. Um, and I hate to mm. say that, but that's just the reality. Um, I, you know, want to advocate for that and encourage churches to take bold and courageous steps. It is, it, it is, it requires, they tell you, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, the sexual abuse inside the church is not happening, you know, from the people coming from the outside. 80% is already in house. Yeah. And it be, and because, you know, they're already in a position where they are trusted. Trust. And so mm-hmm. they're able to, you know, really, um, take advantage of that to take advantage of people yeah so, so anyway that's that's a question that gets me pretty fired up honestly cool. yeah i'm excited about that that material and we get our staff gets to meet with you for yeah. a couple hours tomorrow and i'm just going to give you a taste yeah. just show you a couple of those training videos and hopefully that'll suck you guys into going through the whole thing and oh, i'm, I'm going to give you the books and all that stuff so anyway even even what we're gonna do in the morning it and just this whole weekend is so fantastic. A lot of churches wouldn't even do this. And so, mm. I mean, I I feel like Mercy Hill is truly a safe haven, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Well, we want to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of our name, Mercy yes. Hill. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we're like, we live in a world where there's right. no mercy. We want to be a place that extends as much of it as possible, you know. And so, yeah. Here's a, another question, too. It's, it's another one of these, like, hey, Christian's... I've said medication is never the answer. How do you bring up that conversation to help people understand its need? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of misconceptions about medication, and I certainly have them. And mm-hmm. not even understanding 
why it's needed and how it can be helpful. Mm-hmm. So even, like I, I mentioned, you know, continued elevated levels of adrenaline and cortisol, which should come back out mm-hmm. when your body starts to relax and yeah. the parasympathetic kicks in. So, but what happens is some of those stress hormones, and I don't want to get too detailed into all of this complicated language, but it does impact the neurobiology of the brain. Mm. Just, you know, neurotransmitters, you know, just the chemicals that are needed for your brain to work right. And so things like continued elevated stress impacts the way that's working. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, you know, you know, serotonin is one of the necessary ones, uh, you know, and so the, the, the medications like an SSRI, you know, Prozac, Zoloft, those kinds of things, um, what they're doing is, you know, there's, you know, in your neurons, pumps that pump these neurotransmitters in and out at normal levels. And um, so those are affected and they're not working it as well. So something like a Zoloft or a Prozac, um, SSRIs and other medications like that, there's so many, they, they help to make the brain work and manage those levels of is this more than you even want to know no this is great right here and i think i think too is like i think a person that's asking this question is denying the reality that like trauma has a physical like effect on your life like that there's which is which is a weird thing because mostly as christians like we'll tell people hey you want to get a counselor that is like i've said this i was like you want to have a counselor as a christian because you want them to treat you mind body and soul right and so, like, a secular view of it can deny the soul. Right. Whereas, like, I think sometimes Christians deny the physical aspect of, like, no, these things have effects on you. Like, you have muscles in your body that right. go, like, tense up from stress and can cause, like, I mean, I had to go to a PT a couple of days because I was having stress and ran all the way down my back and all the way right. down my leg. Yes. And I was like, and they're like, hey, man, take a day off. And I was right. like. Yeah, probably do. So that's a good point because I think we can identify when mind and emotion is affecting us viscerally. Yes. Like I'm getting right up, getting ready to get up, get up and give my first speech, and I, yes. I, I have diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. It's like, is something wrong with you? Yeah. No, it's just my body's reaction to stress. Right. So that's a funny example, but we get gut aches. We do get pain. There's ways that, you know, Besser Vanderkolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, talks about how mm-hmm. all of this is stored in our body, how we, we experience So I think if we're rational about this, we all could say, okay, I can see how mind and emotion is impacting me physically. Right. I feel it in my heart's pounding. Mm-hmm. Is there something sinful about my heart? Rap, you know, beating you know 120 beats a minute because mm-hmm. I'm nervous about something. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not going to tell you to repent. I'm going to tell you just start breathing and get your heart rate back down and right. all that stuff. So the brain is the same way. The brain is an organ. It's right. the way God created it. it. It's it's you know there's neurological pathways that are laid and you know even in those early years you know birth to five years old so much of your brain is being right. shaped. And, you know, another book I recommend people to read just, it's an extreme book, but it's called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And it's just an extreme case of a kid that was raised in dog kennels. 
Yeah. And he never, Until about five, and, and when they pulled him out, you could almost say he had brain damage. Mm-hmm. But it was because he didn't have any kind of relational, emotional, nurturing connection with any adult. Yeah. And so he basically had you know, a, a brain that couldn't communicate and function properly simply because of lack of nurture and neglect. Yeah. So when you, you get back to, you, that's one end of the continuum and you have down here. But when you think of medication, you know, something has happened, you know. Uh, Zoloft, Prozac, those kind of things are called SSRI, Selective uh, Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Okay. And what it's saying is too much of it's being pulled out. Okay. We want to leave some of it in. Okay. So the, the SSRIs are actually Im- impacting the way the pumps are working. So okay. just think of it as it's making the pumps work properly. Gotcha. And it's keeping the right amount of serotonin in there so that your brain can work. So we, but we never say... You know, I never tell anybody, and a, a good psychiatrist who's prescribing medications is never saying, this is the end all, this is a cure. Right. It's to help, it's a mood stabilizer. It helps stabilize you. So that some of these other things, you know, you know therapy, even for believers. You know, I've, had, I've had people come to me and say, I've never thought about taking medication. I've always been told it's wrong to take it. And these are staff. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'm like, go right now. And get the medicine. Get it. <laughs> and it, it's not to negate their faith in Christ, their walk with Christ, their belief in the gospel, and all those things, or even you know therapy they're getting, but it's a stabilizer mm-hmm. to get the pumps working right, mm-hmm. which are in me, being impacted by stress levels. And so it's mood stabilizer, and then I'm able to, to really begin to process yes. what's happening, what's at the root of you know, stress levels and and so one staff member came back and said, please tell the world. <laughs> because I just, and they were having panic attacks. And, and they mm. had been doing everything, praying and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And again, prayer's not bad. But, but they just kept having, for a good chunk of their adult life, panic attacks. And, and they just went away. I think a piece of it, too, is like people are like, well, if God wants to heal you, he's going to heal you. Right. And it's like, and and I always look at it like this, like, look, look, like, you know, God uses a lot of miracles in people's life. Like, for instance, some of the miracles that you've heard from the Lord has been through the community. Right. Like through friends speak. It wasn't a cloud from the, you know. Okay, so if your heart is doing some kind of weird pitter patter and and your doctor says, hey, take this medication and it'll help make your heart get back in a normal rhythm. I'm not going to tell you, Ernie. Just <laughs> let trust God and you know, he'll heal your heart. He'll heal your heart. Yeah. So the the thing about medication is and just remember, you know, a lot of people don't know what a psychiatrist is. A psychiatrist is a guy that's been all the way through med school. Mm-hmm. Some people focus on feet, some people focus on brain, okay. you know, just okay. they have focused their specialization is psychiatric medication. Okay. That's just where they specify. So they they're a, they're an MD. So they're not you know the wacky quacky whatever people yeah. tend to think. I mean, there's a reason they can per, can prescribe medications. So they take you if you went to see a psychiatrist, it'd be like going to see your doctor because they are a doctor. Mm-hmm. But I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, you're just saying like medicine is a okay. Tool. You have to think about the brain as an organ. It's right. it's part of your body. Right. No different than your heart. 
are no different than your stomach. If you have something going on in your stomach, you're like, please give me some medicine. Yeah. My stomach won't stop I mean, stop is that the blessing me. of God that he's like, hey, now he's brought these, right. med- like he's given people the ability to create these right. medicines and be used. So, so you don't die like, you know, like you used to have gut rot all the time. Yes. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about some of these things anymore. Right. I mean, Besser Van Kolk, he talks about this in his book and a lot of others. You know, they just kind of stumbled way back in the day on some of these SSRIs and and started putting some of these trauma victims, these guys coming back from war Mm -hmm. and um, with PTSD. And again, it wasn't like it wasn't a cure, but it helped stabilize them where they could actually function and and start, you know, moving further toward, you know, um, healing and hope. Yeah. So anyway, okay. So I'm gonna finish with uh, one more question, and it, it we may have a second one depending on how quickly because this kind of dovetails into something we've already answered, but it's a little bit more particular. Guys, uh, you mentioned the church as a safe haven uh, several times in dealing with someone whose trauma is caused by the church itself. How does that change your approach in dealing with or talking with them? And not as a counselor, I'm assuming, yeah. but as a friend, engaging with them where they have, you know, significant church hurt, where they were, you know. I, I, I guess the question is, like, how do you get them not to throw the church out? Yeah. I think the first thing they need to hear is, you're right. Yeah. And I said that to somebody one time, and they, they just looked at me like, are you throwing churches under the bus? I'm saying, well, a lot of them. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Mm-hmm. The church has done a horrible job of covering up right. and, and not helping people. And I'm sorry. Yeah. Will you forgive me? I'm yeah. speaking on behalf of Big C. Yeah. I'm trying to, myself as a pastor, you know, move in a different direction and help other pastors move in a different direction. So I think that's what Caring Well was about. No more denial. No more cover-up. Um, we we, wanna, we want to, we envision a church that's different. We, mm-hmm. we envision that there are churches like in Mercy Hill or Cornerstone mm-hmm. where a person truly can feel safe, mm-hmm. where we're not going to sweep things under the rug. We're not going to cover up just to protect somebody's title or position. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with it. And I even tell stories. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened here. Here's where someone was confronted here. Mm-hmm. We're not afraid of that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's safety for the, the abused victim first, mm-hmm. even inside of marriages where there's domestic violence. It mm-hmm. used to be save the marriage first. Now it's save the wife first. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure you're safe and protected. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, that message is something a lot of people have never heard because that's just not been their experience. Mm-hmm. So the best we can do is acknowledge it, not deny it. Um, say you're right, and, and that's sad. And church history is filled with really... Right. terrible stories but we envision a church that's different right and that's our message and that's what we hope to accomplish yeah and all we could be is humble and own our stuff yeah you know yeah, yeah. that's right well steve thanks for talking with us today yeah it was truly a gift to hear you teach yeah you know look forward to you doing it again at some point at Marcel church you know i would love that you know and then uh having to have this conversation with you it is I feel so, like, I'm like, oh, this is such above my head. I'm like just learning as much as I can. Yeah. Stuff, you know? So no, I appreciate it's, you. 
Yeah, we're I, hopefully we all. I, I love my my clinical supervisor. I call him the mental health Yoda of of Ames, Iowa, um, and he's so humble, and is just he'll he'll say to me, "I'm learning so much from you," and mm-hmm. and 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 I don't think I don't think he is, but maybe he is. But I think it's just you know even my posture coming in is we're all continuing to move in a direction and learn together and. If anything I've said, you know, in here or in the message this morning helped anybody, I, I would feel great about that. But uh, I'm excited even uh, the way I'm continuing to, to grow and learn and, and my ability to help people and help churches. So grateful yeah. for the opportunity to come in. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you guys for your questions. If we didn't hit your question, man, we'd love to figure out how to do that. But we just answered as many as we could okay. and tried to kept that within <laughs> the time. The time flew by. Wow. I know, didn't it? All right. Until next time. See you later. Thanks.